Kia ora, and welcome to Venn Presents, a series of conversations exploring the depth and richness of the Christian tradition between the host Sam Bloor and members of the Venn team and wider Venn community. Each short series of Venn Presents will expand on some of the themes that have emerged from Venn's work, including our programs, events, books, and our monthly publication Common Ground. The topics will be wide-ranging, from exploring Christian faith and doctrine to engagement with wider culture, including family, business, the arts, education, music, and sport. Our hope is that through each series of Venn Presents, you'll be able to reimagine how the gospel might look in the communities and callings you find yourself in today. Now let's go ahead and listen to the latest episode. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Not a dirty, wet hole, nor a dry, bare, sandy hole. It was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. His name was Baggins. The Bagginses had lived in the neighbourhood of the hill from time out of mind, and people considered them very respectable because they never had any adventures or did anything unexpected. This is a story of how a Baggins had an adventure. Welcome to this two-part podcast that we're calling Tolkien, Fantasy and the Arts. My name's Sam Bloor and I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Andrew Shamey. Good to have you with us, Andrew. Thanks, Sam. Good to be here. Uh, You recently gave a talk on Tolkien uh, for Venn and we thought we'd expand that out a little bit, let you talk to some of that material, just have a bit of a chat more conversationally, and then maybe come up a level as well and just talk more broadly about the arts. But let's start with Tolkien. Mm. You've been a, a big fan for a long time. Tell us a little bit about what's motivating that and what's sort of just animating that interest, particularly as you've started to go deep in recent months. Yeah, I mean, I guess most people have a Tolkien origin story. Um, <laughs> I remember first discovering Tolkien when I was probably about 11 years old. I think I just randomly grabbed a book from the school library that just happened to be uh, The Lord of the Rings and started reading it when I was 11. So I've... Wow, okay. I won't do the math, but (laughs) it's been a while. Um, And it begins with just a great love of of this book and The Hobbit and uh, other works of Tolkien. It just... there's a uh, in, something's encountered in that, those books that I yes. haven't really encountered elsewhere. Yes. Um, but in more recent years, uh, part of my work is through Venn is thinking about um, the Christian imagination yeah. and uh, the Christian account of reality and, and yes. the universe. And I just have found myself continuing to come back to Tolkien and his, his friend Lewis as there's a feel we get when we're reading their works yes. of, en- of encountering something rich and deep that feels real. Yes, yes. Um, and the more I've learned about Tolkien and Lewis, seeing that they, they understood themselves as actually speaking about reality in particular ways. Yeah. They're, they're trying to reveal something of the reality. Almost, this is what Christianity feels like. When we read The Lord of the Rings, this is the Christian universe. This is what it feels like to be in it. Yes. So my renewed interest in Tolkien the last couple of years has been trying to say what's going on there. 
Um, how do we do that? How do we understand the role of the arts as giving us encounters with a different vision of reality? Yeah. Um, so there, a lot of themes have come together, and it just happens that I also just love the books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just to return to that title for a moment, Tolkien, Fantasy and the Arts, uh, a wildly ambitious amount of stuff for us to try and cover in two podcasts. <laughs> People have done PhDs and more on any one of those single uh, sort of topics, and here we are. At times it's going to feel like we're skimming along the surface. At times it's going to feel like we're missing out big, huge, big chunks of his life or, or, or other aspects. But we just, so for interest and because this has been, um, it's been topical and for the for the role that it's playing at, at Venn and sparking these conversations and because there's a lot lots of fans out there and just another piece that's talking about him at all people will 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 enjoy some aspects of that. Um, but I thought we'd we'd maybe start with that that opening line. You know, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit, mm. uh, which he's got a great story of sort of marking papers. And uh, coming across a blank page in a paper, and he sort of says, "I I felt like you know giving giving five extra marks." Marking school examinations in the summertime is a is an enormous, um, very laborious, and unfortunately also boring. And I remember picking up a paper and actually finding I nearly gave an extra mark for it, extra five marks actually. <laughs> one page on this particular paper was left blank. Glorious. Nothing to read. So I scribbled on it. I can't think why. In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. I think that was eventually published in 1937. I know you won't be able to go into incredible detail about his, uh, about his life, but how did he get to the point where he's working as, a, as an Oxford Don, where he's, where he's actually uh, in the academy, and getting these ideas uh, to, to, to actually begin works like that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth saying up front. I'm, I'm not a Tolkien expert, um, there, there are experts. I don't speak the, you know, multiple uh, Elvish languages. <laughs> you know, there's degrees of fandom. Uh, That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I'm not, not part of. But um, so, so keep that in mind. And that people will hear us rustling through some papers in the background too as we try to look yeah. for quotes from others who are who have yes. taken that fandom to its extreme. You know, we've got we've got a few books lying around beside us. We've got papers and quotes that we'll try to get to. Yeah. No. Um. So he he was born in South Africa in um, eighteen ninety two, um, but moved out um, from South Africa to England uh, when he was about three years old. Okay. Uh, and his father. His father died when he was young, so around when he was about three or four years old. Okay. Um, and his mother actually passed away when he was 12, so he was orphaned by 12. Mm-hmm. Um, his mother had been a, a Catholic, yeah. a, a convert to Catholic, um, Catholicism, and so he was raised a Catholic. And what, what she did was actually give guardianship over Tolkien and his brother um, to a, a man called Father Morgan, so a Catholic what? priest, yeah. who really took care of them um, until they reached an age of independence. Um, they lived in, I think, boarding houses, so they didn't necessarily live all their time with him, but he provided for them um, and, and took care of them. So from an early age, Tolkien was known for, um, it had a just great love of languages, and yes. actually was early on inventing his own languages. Yes. Um, and he combined that with a... a, a a great love of, of literature as well. So that's what he went on to study when he um, went on to university. Uh, 
Yeah. So he became a philologist, which is a word that I struggle to pronounce, (laughs) but is actually about languages, uh, um, the origin of languages, how languages connect, the history of languages. Um, But from an early age, he was inventing his own languages. So he studied real languages, but he also invented... One of the things that comes through in the movie Tolkien mm. is the role that his mother and the the priest actually played by. I think Colmeny um, right. plays the the priest and does a does a great job. But they're very you come across liking both his mother and the um, and the priest for I guess bringing out of him or, or um, forming him in such a way that he was open both to his uh, religious ideas that, that he had a faith uh, but also this idea of fantasy and his mum you know, capture these moments in the movie of his mum telling stories and sort of doing that and actually um, bringing his imagination alive so uh, brought alive spiritually brought alive in the in, in the imagination and that fantasy realm is that a sort of a fair depiction you think through the movie is that as you've read other sources yeah I think he had a great love and respect for his mum mm. um, she he was homeschooled by her and she began to teach him languages, I think Greek and Latin. Right. Um, she was quite a uh, well-educated woman herself um, and very capable of, of homeschooling these boys. Yes. Uh, and so gave him, I think he inherited, and then she helped develop this, this love of languages. And then uh, Father Morgan, uh, Tolkien, it was just a, a kind presence to right. an orphan you know, yeah, boy, yeah, actually. Yeah. Um, and helped uh, Tolkien get an education, go on to some good schools that were able to sort of encourage that learning in him. Um, but yeah, I think that his experience with the mum, he, he, when they first moved back from South Africa, they moved to Worcestershire, and it was that idyllic sort of English countryside um, for a period up until 12 when, when his mum died. He lived in this English countryside that... That really inspired the Shire, the depictions of the Shire and right, the okay, Hobbit yes. and the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so he had this quite idyllic childhood in many ways um, that I think did have a profound influence on his his temperament, his love of languages, his love of nature, yes. um, and love of stories. Yeah, yeah. Without getting ahead of ourselves, I mean, some of some of what he's re- reacting to with with his writing is the the threat he saw to some of that life as well, with the the sort of the the industrialisation of everything and the um, th- things becoming more mechanical than he thought was good for for human beings, um, certainly for himself. Yeah, he moved to Birmingham when he was twelve, and so quite an industrial yeah, part. Totally. So that that. That almost that trauma of going from this idyllic green countryside to an industrial city, yeah, I think yeah. had a profound inf- influence on him. Almost when I hear the word Birmingham, I feel I've got to rub a bit of coal dust off my face. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, I, like just hearing the word has landed some some yeah. coal, coal dust in my face or yeah. something. You know, so he he goes um, in, into languages, this love of languages, and then he begins these 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 works, and we'll, we'll get to. Probably a bit later on, how long these take to to come about. Let's just pause for a moment on on the sort of the popularity of the works themselves. You're talking about your 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 Tolkien uh, origin moment, uh, and then what they sort of did to you. You're in very good company. Yeah. So uh, the Hobbit was first published in 1937, and within three months, it had sold out. 
Okay. So that book was immediately popular. Yeah. Um, now he took quite a few years. We'll talk about it later to to go and write the Lord of the Rings, and that was published in about 1954 to between 1954 and 1955. Um, and since that time, it's been enormously popular. Right. Um, it it got a real start in the U.S. when a paperback. Um, sort of bootleg version actually was published right. in the US okay and sort of in the 1960s and college campuses everywhere that um, became enormously popular um, but in many different polls it, it comes out near the top if not the top of most popular or best books or most well-loved books um, of the 20th century yeah. so um, there was a uh, a poll done in 1997 by um, Channel 4, the British um, TV channel, and Waterstones Bookstore, which is sort of the large bookstore in, in the UK. The calls of the, of yeah. the UK, yeah. Um, and it was voted the greatest book of the 20th century then. Okay. But, you know, the BBC, similar polls, um, um, the nation's favourite book right. by the BBC, um, Amazon uh, Amazon customers voted it the best book of the millennium. <laughs> wow. So they've, they've canvassed <laughs> Be- it all. off some papyrus uh, challenges. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and then there's that enduring legacy of it over other fantasy writers. Um, so you talk to, um, or you listen to well-known fantasy writers at the moment who, who's influenced them, and Tolkien's often near the, the, the top of that. So there's yes. this... Influence that has um, well outlived him. Yes, and of course the movies. Um, that, you know Peter yes, Jackson's yes. movies. I think re um, sort of renewed that love. Yes, my dear Frodo. You asked me once if I had told you everything there was to know about my adventures. And while I can honestly say I have told you the truth, I may not have told you all of it. So it's it's been enormously popular and well loved um, since its publication, really. But by your average, but re- yeah, reader. And, and, and that's the next bit I was going to ask you because uh, you know we've had fascinating conversations about this before, where you've said, look. Uh, the critics actually, by and large, have gone the other way. Yeah, and right from the start, you know, he, he there was it didn't re- have critical acclaim. There were a few people like his good friend C.S. Lewis wrote a glowing review of it. Um, the poet W.H. Auden, uh, famous poet that um, of the twentieth century, loved the Lord of the Rings, but actually the the rest of the critics, or many critics, uh, had quite negative views of this book. So when that poll came out in 1997 saying this is you know, the best book of the 20th century, um, the critical reaction was quite negative. So um, Susan Jeffries, who's a journalist with the Sunday Star Times, um, she said this, a depressing thought that the votes for the world's best 20th century book should have come from those burrowing and escape into a non-existent world. Um, another right. writer, yeah. Howard Jacobson, said, Tolkien, that's for children, isn't it? Well, the adults slow. It's another black day for British culture. And so there's quite typical responses that are saying, right. this is a book for children, or it's a type of escapism, 
or it's not sort of serious adult literature. So Tolkien really lived with those criticisms in his own life, and they've, they've really endured, despite the, the popularity wow. of these books. I mean, I think it was, um, so Peter Kreef's written a book on the um, the worldview of Tolkien. Now, what mm. was his philosophy that underlies it? And, and so you'll hear some of his words, no doubt, coming through as we're, as we're sort of chatting, because I think we both had a, had a look through some of what he'd written, and, and you can sort of see that um, lying latent in a lot of his work. But in his intro, he said, you know, W.H. Auden said, um, if, if you don't like Tolkien, I don't trust your judgment on any other literature. Like, we, we can essentially stop talking now. So... You know, that's sort of heavy hitters meet heavy hitters. Yeah. And you get this div- division of it, eh? Yeah. And, and there's something in Tolkien that almost elicits that passionate feeling, either for or against. It's, right. There's yes. not this sort of neutrality. Um, I, I guess there is indifference, you know, so, but often by people who haven't read it. Um, and then, but if you read it, there seems to be this this love or. I just don't get it, or you know, yeah, there's something yeah. else that's, yeah. They there was a documentary done recently, and uh, we're going to, if we can, put some of the quotes from that documentary in along as we go from just people who uh, were interviewed about him going back a while ago, because it's uh, a very a, a younger sounding Judy Dench doing the narration for it. But one of the people was the person that uh, at the time of the documentary held the same chair that he held. Uh, And here's a great quote from him saying what he thinks is going on with the critics' uh, response. The critics were varied in their reaction to The Lord of the Rings. Among the condemnations, there were some significant good reviews. Bernard Levin wrote that it would be impossible to do justice to this magnificent book. To begin with, the learning is prodigious. But why did some of the critics get it so wrong? I I would think that they, uh, they read it right, uh, and they realised what it was trying to do, and then they realised they didn't like that, so they denied their own response. And that, I think, is the worst thing a critic can do, uh, when you, uh, you know it in your heart, but then you think, I'm going to suppress this because it is giving an answer which I, I didn't expect and I, 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 I don't like. So I think there was a kind of a self-censorship there. I mean, he seems to be agreeing with you there on the, on the divisive nature of it. It's sort of like you can't, <laughs> you can't hold neutral ground on this. And he sort of says, seems to be saying they, they don't like what's happening to them. Um, what is happening to them? <laughs> what, is, what is fantasy doing? Because I know this is what's taken you from just being a, a fan of it and having it happen uh, to, to you to then going, all right, wh- what is this process? What is fantasy doing in us and to us and for us. Yeah, I think this has been an era I've tried to get my own head around, being someone who, who loves this literature, being on that side of the, um, the debate, but then trying to say what is going on? What is, why do I love this? And what sort of impact is it having on me? Mm. So Tolkien actually addressed these questions in his own life. And one of the main uh, places he did that was in a lecture he delivered in 1937 called On Fairy Stories. Right. Uh, he delivered at University of St Andrews, in which he really offers a defence of fairy stories. He um, he uses that term interchangeably with fantasy, so he's okay. meaning the same thing, and I'll explain what he means by that. Yeah. But he's really asking, well, what is the use of fantasy? First of all, what is it? And then what is its use? And he's giving that lecture because people were questioning 
his own choices and right. the Hobbit had just come out. Yes. He was working on the ho- sequel to The Hobbit, so The Lord of the Rings. Yes. He was a world-renowned academic. Um, he had... He, he was at Oxford University. Why was he spending his time, you know, with these creatures, the hobbits and dragons and elves? Uh, was that a good use of his gifts? Right, good use yeah. of the time? So... Yeah. The sense was this is a personal question for him. So he really um, began to address that in, in this lecture on fairy stories. And the first place he goes is to ask what is a fantasy story or what is a fairy story? And this, I think, really begins to talk to that question of what is happening to people. Mm. And um, he says, you know, when we think of fairy stories, we can associate them with fairies. Um, you know, these diminutive little beings. And he said, well, first of all, fairies aren't diminutive little beings historically. Right. Um, And a fairy story is not really associated with fairies. It's associated with uh, the realm or state to which fairies belong. So the land of fairies, which he calls fairy. And the air that blows in that country. Right. So he's using quite, in some ways, imprecise language. Yes. To say, at the heart of fantasy stories, there's this this land or this atmosphere, you know, the air that, that blows, which he describes as embodied wonder. Right. Or yes. arresting strangeness. It's that quality we get in fantasy stories of um, reading them and just encountering uh, wondrous things. Strange things, unfamiliar things that often uh, yeah, ev- invoke in us a sense of wonder or awe. Um, that's sort of the quality he's getting at with what is a fantasy uh, story. So he, he uh, C.S. Lewis in an essay, I think, that borrows from Tolkien's lecture, talks about, you know, Jack and the Giant Beanstalk. So there's many ways to put a young person in danger. You don't need a giant. Yes. Um, there's many stories that can have someone overcoming great odds. Yes. Uh, but there's something about it being a giant that gives it a certain quality. Yes. Yeah. Uh, a certain strangeness, a certain sense of things that are uh, unfamiliar, sort of ancient beyond human control or understanding that evokes a certain quality to our imaginative response um, that is at the heart of what fantasy is. Yes. Uh, And so Tolkien says, actually, a lot of people don't like to be arrested. He says the quality is arresting strangeness. Well, a lot of people don't want to be arrested, to have uh, their view of the world troubled in any particular ways. Um, so that's sort of getting towards the question of what, what's actually going on when we read such literature. Yes, yes. Um, one of the uh, fans that was interviewed for that documentary, and I, I won't play the, the clip for this one, but uh, she was sort of saying, it does something to you that a detective story doesn't. Mm. Uh, you know, you, you still get taken out of your world in a detective story, and it might make you come back and want to, play at detectives, but it won't enlarge your world the way that Lord of the Rings was. And she was sort of talking with the sort of, you know, um, 
very, very um, excitedly about what it had done. It's a very similar experience to your discovering it in your preteens. She was saying the same thing in a way that now if she reads other th- stories, they're still not her life, but they're not otherworldly in mm. a way that disrupts in quite that same way. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it, the heart of a detective story is there's a mystery here that can be solved that actually when we spend the time, when we put together all the clues, light will be shed and we'll see things clearly. Right. Really with with fantasy, there's a sense of actually there's a mystery we can't fully penetrate. Right. There's yes. a quality of the world that isn't fully explicable. Right. Yes. And that's that's the quality that it enables fantasy to have the type of effect that Tolkien argues it does on us. Right. Yes. Yes. Would it be fair to say that even for the characters within the fantasies that he's creating, that is supposed to be so, and that his his baddies, for want of a better word, are people who are trying to actually almost control the fantasy themselves. Like that's one of the markers, as I understand it, and I haven't read them as many times as you have, but one of the things that marks them out is that they are trying to get control of a a certain um, place or even control the world that he's created. There seems to be almost hardwired into it that same critique. Yeah, I think, I mean, we'll get to this when we talk about actually uh, what fantasy does, but one of the things that we see... uh, certainly in the Lord of Rings, what the quality that sort of unites all the sort of um, the bad guys, to use that, that phrase, um, is trying to take control over the world and other people, to have sort of a type of um, rule over them mm. that essentially absorbs others into them so they become just sort of puppets of your own control but they were all of them deceived for another ring was made in the land of Mordor in the fires of Mount Doom the dark lord Sauron forged in secret a master ring to control all others and into this ring he poured his cruelty his malice and his will to dominate all life one Ring to rule them all. And Tolkien say that's actually a fundamentally wrong way to relate to the world. Right. Because the world is other than us. Right. And actually one of the roles of fantasy is to help remind us that the world is other than us. Right. And so almost the great uh, sin in, in the Lord of the Rings, the thing that makes uh, the One Ring so problematic, is it is trying to have dominion over others. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. It's a sense of possessiveness, and over the um, the world itself, and over the world itself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no. Look, I know you've outlined actually some specific things that that fantasy then is doing, and we might have already jumped the gun a little bit on on some of those threads and themes. But maybe start running us through uh, what some of those are. Yeah. So Tolkien talks about three things that fantasy does so three functions or uses of fantasy um it talks about recovery yep um escape and consolation right so 
it's worth we'll, going through yeah, those. We'll, we'll work our way through those. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the first sort of function, or, or gift, I like to use the word gift because I think this is what he's saying, that uh, particularly a thing that fantasy offers us mm. is um, recovery. So what's recovery? Um, there's a there's a scene early on in The Hobbit. Um, so Bilbo Baggins, in the first chapter of The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins, very comfortable, bourgeois, Hobbit, very ordered life. Um, he doesn't want to go on any adventures. He likes this sort of, you know, having his, his meals and his food and everything sort of ordered. Uh, his world's interrupted by 13 dwarfs and one wizard, um, Gandalf, turning up on his doorstep and really bustling him off on an adventure that he never quite sort of says yes to. Um, (laughs) But there's a scene there before they go where the, you know, it's late in the evening and the the fire started to burn low and the dwarfs um, begin to sing. And they sing a story about the Lonely Mountain. This is the, the halls in the Lonely Mountain where dwarfs have worked for generations to make these fine gems and gold and they tell a story of how a dragon comes and the, sort of uh, destroys those halls, um, the town outside of it, the sort of fire of the dragon's breath. And it's this sort of magical song, really. We must awake at break of day to find our long fall. Tolkien then goes on to describe Bilbo's reaction to, which is he he suddenly has this love of beautiful things. He sort of captures that dwarfish love of finely made things. Uh, he has a desire to go see this lonely mountain, to go encounter creation in new ways, to go on an adventure. And he looks out his window and he sees the stars overhead, this very familiar sight for him, Hmm. and the depiction of the gems in the sort of the dwarfish halls. uh, He he thinks of those and sees the stars in new light. He sees a fire, someone across the river has has lit a campfire. And it brings to mind dragons. So suddenly his world uh, becomes in some way strange to him, but he he has a restoration of wonder. There's like well, a restoration yeah. of um, a childlike wonder. Mm. And that's really what Tolkien means by recovery. So the, okay. the fantasy of the, Hobbit, um, the dwarf song leads to a recovery for Bilbo of a relationship th- with the world that's just marked by wonder. Yes. Uh, he sees it uh, afresh. Um, so Tolkien talks about this as a regaining of a clear view or seeing things as we are or were meant to see them. That's that sort of recovery that he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. That's what we did all the time when we were kids, right? You see a campfire, could be a dragon. See this? I watch the kids do that. My young kids now doing that all the time. So there's that aspect. And also the recovering the enjoyment and the taking notice of those small things also for what they are. 
and the enjoyment of those things too. Is that an aspect of the recovery? To, to go back to that, that uh, guy who's now got the chair that Tolkien once had at Oxford, he said, he's made me a better observer. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a number of things. I think that's exactly it. Um, there's a, a paying attention that happens um, because we begin to see things uh, with fresh vision. Mm. Um, one of the critiques that could be made of Tolkien here is, well, that not that just escapism to sort of think of gems and dragons when it's just a campfire and it's just stars. Uh, but for Tolkien, as a sort of Catholic Christian, mm. uh, deeply aware of the Christian tradition and the Christian vision of reality, he would say the world really is wonderful. Right. Yes. The world really is full of um, majesty and wonder and goodness and depth and meaning. Our lives have a mythic quality. Uh, we are caught up in uh, a great story. Yes. And so for him, that recovery is really a, a restoration of clear sight. It's seeing actually things in many ways more clearly Yes, because we're encountering the depths of things or the sense of which that just that wonder that is part of the world we're part of. Um, and he talks about this in a later essay as actually a type of love. Right. The, the recovery uh, is a type of uh, love. So he talks about it as a love and respect for all things, an inanimate and animate. Um, there's an unpossessive love of the other when we encounter it with wonder um, that produces both truth and delight. Uh, Things seen in this in this light, he says, will be respected. Will be they'll be delightful to us, beautiful to us, wonderful, even glorious. Mm. So I think that's the recovery he's he's really hoping we have, and a good fairy story, a good fantasy story, will enable because if we pay attention, we actually look and say, well, this is a tree is an amazing thing. Right. Yes. A fire. Yes. You know, any of us who have sat and watched a fire. And got lost in that. Bit. Yeah, yeah. Because it is incredible. Yes. And he's saying that's a recovery. That, we, that the world really is like that. Yes. And and a recovery too of of, of sort of um, of, of things unseen. That, that that through paying attention to that, you you become aware maybe of of other things also. I mean. Talk to us just a little bit about the need for recovery. I mean, you know, T Tolkien's going after a disenchantment mm -hmm. that particularly in the West um, ha had sort of unfolded to the point where one symptom of that is the critics responding to his work the way they are. Yeah. I mean, I think to step back in order to come at that, how fantasy actually does that work, mm. uh, for Tolkien, he would say, there's two main obstacles for us seeing the world as it really is, mm. or wonder. And one is over-familiarity. Mm -hmm. So we're all familiar, you know, this yeah. complex, you just go past the same tree a hundred times on your walk to work, and you never really look at it. You, yes. you, you're not sort of paying attention. But you couldn't be in the springtime where that tree that wouldn't look sad, but covered with leaves, you see. Look old, but not sad. And these are, uh, that... Uh, it's like kind of plain, doesn't it, or something? 
whatever that tree is, and these are limes. But all the limes have such a, however old they are, they're lovely green in, uh, in spring. I have always, for some reason, I don't know why, I'm enormously attracted by trees. All my works is full of trees. I suppose I have actually had some simple-minded form of longing action. Who would like to? I should have liked to be able to make contact with a tree and find out what it feels about things. <laughs> the other one is possessiveness. Right. And this is really seeing the world around us as in some way um, only through the lens of our wants or our needs, our projects and plans, mm. and not really seeing it as genuinely other than us, if, if, of having its own independent value and dignity and nature. Um, and so fantasy actually helps break the hold on us of over-familiarity and possessiveness. Um, and it does this by a couple of different ways. One is just by putting the familiar things alongside wondrous things in a story so that right. you yes. you begin to <laughs> look at them both as, as wondrous. So he'll talk about, Tolkien talks about, actually it was in fairy stories that he began to see stones and water and trees Yes. And, and, and bread and wine it, in a new light because they were alongside the sort of uh, dragons and elves. Yes. Um, he talks about things are made all the more luminous by their setting. Right. Yeah. Uh, and if you think of the Lord of the Rings, actually, uh, there's not a lot of magic in it. If right. you think yes. of Gandalf, try to think of something magical Gandalf does. Uh, he, there's a couple of things he does uh, that that we could call magic, but actually a lot of the Lord of the Rings is just our ordinary world right. in some yeah. ways. Yeah. But caught up in a with a depth and richness uh, that sort of transfigures those things yes. in particular ways. Yes. Um, the magic of the elves is really a just enriching enriching of creation yes they make ropes that are just more ropey than ordinary ropes <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah or bread that's just more bready yeah you know um so in some ways we take those familiar things and helps us they come more luminous just by being seen in the story yes yeah and the other one is this possessiveness um fantasy defamiliarizes things as well okay yeah, so yeah. it you know it takes a lizard and enlarges it and makes it capable of breathing fire and you've got a dragon yes you know so there's a sense of taking a familiar thing from our world defamiliarizing it and sort of breaking the hold we are we have over it making us sort of aware that our own ways of seeing things aren't the only ways to see things and so it, it can have that sort of impact and i think that enables that sort of recovery it that's the make arresting strangeness and makes things strange. So our own perceptions of things come questioned. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't we uh, move on and just talk? Um, I know we've got we've got to get through. Um, you know, escape and consolation. Uh, we probably won't have time in this 
part one to do both of those, but I know for, for you they're actually connected, so we might have to leave people on a bit of a, a cliffhanger where we're doing <laughs> one of them now, and we'll get to get to consolation uh, in, in, in part two. Um, but he, he, he has a bit of fun with uh, folk who accuse him of, of, of escapism, doesn't he? Yeah. I mean, he, he thinks it's a bit odd that that's a negative term. Yes. He talks about, you know, a, a prisoner, you know, a prisoner of war trying to escape. Yes. That's, that's a good thing, surely. <laughs> yeah. You know, so he, he wants to question the whole premise that escapism's bad. Yes. In particular ways. Um, but then he also wants to make a deeper point, uh, which is connected to his, his understanding of reality, that actually this is, fantasy is not a fleeing from reality. It's actually a escape deeper into reality. Right. Yes. It's a, it, it goes back to this idea of we're seeing things more rightly. We're seeing the true depth and wonder of things. Actually, uh, we're escaping perhaps limited views of the world. Yes. Into a deeper view, and it goes to the question you sort of asked before about um, the the modern world. Right. Yeah. That we have. Tolkien's quite critical of our modern, many aspects of the modern world. Um, because he sees particularly machines and technology as sort of reinforcing this tendency towards possessiveness. Mm. Uh, um, our machines and technology sort of encourage a type of possessiveness over the world, over the created order, that stops us actually encountering the world as other than us, full of wonder, as having its own sort of independent nature and dignity independent of our projects and plans mm. and he and he talks about actually and that possessiveness comes from a view of the world that says the only things that are real are what we can measure and calculate and see mm. and so he wants to say actually that that's not the case there's reality in uh in creation's ordering in its uh, sort of its meaning purpose nature so he sees the modern world as actually in some ways imprisoning us in a false relationship with reality and so fantasy can help us escape that right yes yes by we enter into a heightened reality um, that's the great joys of reading good fantasy is you suddenly seeing courage embodied honor um sort of uh service yes. friendship Yes. Uh, all these things are heightened in a way um, that we're sort of encountering and seeing more clearly. Actually, those are also aspects of our world and our lives. Time and again, when you listen, uh, as we've we've done over the last um, few weeks, and you for a lot longer than that, but I've, I've tuned into a, a few now documentaries. Time and time again, people are saying, I, you, you come back out of if you can use that, sort of out of the books, out of Lord of the Rings, uh, seeing your own world better and actually wanting to engage it more. Mm. Is that one of the things that maybe distinguishes it from some of the, the, the forms of fantasy that we've seen definitely explode in the last, say, couple of decades? I think of, you know, on, online games where pe people almost take on these personas, which 
seem to be the the negative aspect of of, of escape. Uh, his son Christopher, uh, at one point, says that some of his critics were maliciously confounding the escape of the prisoner with the flight of the deserter. Yeah, <laughs> you know. But whether there is a bit of a flight of the deserter in, into some games to escape my life, uh, I, I will take on a second persona. I'll take on a persona within this created online world or, or whatever and you know name name your favorite version of of that second life is an endless garden of creativity we are walking into a work of art created by the people who live there We have the ability to communicate in a way that is very liberating. When I found Second Life and saw everything that it was capable of doing, that really struck a chord with me. There's a freedom that comes from being in the virtual world. I sort of think of um, people that have elaborate lives um uh, remember talking to one person i knew he, he had people depending on him uh, in that world actually more people probably depending on him in that world than, than were depending on him in the real world you know or had maybe used to depend on him but now couldn't anymore um yeah that, that seems to me uh Tolkien would would not be a fan of, of that sort of fantasy it's doing none of those things it's its aim is not to return you uh, to the real world, uh, the the better for having spent time in that one. In fact, often there's there's monetary motives to keep you in that world as long as possible. Yeah, I think I think for Tolkien has such a strong sense of the the there is a world that is, there is a reality, and it's 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 wonderful. This this Christian understanding of the cosmos is a world full of meaning. And life and joy right at the very heart of it um, so he's always wanting us to sort of return to that to actually see more clearly um, and so there's a real sort of belief that underpins his work he mm. he really is trying to say something about our world in particular ways and I think a lot of the other fantasies and potentially games there's no sense of wanting to return people to see more clearly the world. It is a type of entertainment that's trying to distract us mm. from actually the truth of things mm. and truth of our lives. Um, and I think often can fall into the trap where um, of encouraging that type of possessiveness where we're relating to the world around us through our own needs and wants and plans without sort of recognizing the world is other than us making certain claims on us and we we need to relate to it rightly mm. Mm. i mean tolkien takes this very seriously the whole the, the whole evil of the ring is possessiveness right yes and the effect it has on people yes. is it disenchants them yes frodo by the end of his journey carrying the ring can no longer taste the goodness of food can no longer barely recognize his friend sam is beginning to physically fade. There's a sort of disenchantment of the ordinary enchantments of life that I think 
<laughs> you can recognize on people who have spent too long on an online world. Right, yes. That, that similar sort of sense of they're faded in particular ways. Yes. That it hasn't sent them back into the world with more joy and life and wonder. Um, now, there might be games that do that in particular ways, and I'm not an expert in that area, but it seems to me there is something, a different dynamic going on there. Well, mate, I, uh, I can't wait for us to move on from Escape onto Consolation, which we'll get to at the start of the uh, of the next uh, part to this, part two of this two-parter. Uh, but maybe as we wrap for this one, um, just set up for us just a, a bit of a favourite scene, and we'll see if we can get some audio to go with it to, uh, to send us out. Yeah, I think, you know, at the heart of the Lord of the Rings, there's this friendship between Frodo and Samwise Gamgee, and there's a scene where they're in Mordor, and um, Sam just reminds Frodo of the great stories that they've loved, and how often the people within those stories don't know they're part of a story and can't see the end. But there's a sense we get that the shadow is only a passing thing. It's just quite a moving scene. <laughs> we should have got Samwise and Frodo to do this uh, podcast. Oh, I know. There he's, we go. he's covering our material. <laughs> there we go. Um, or are we covering his, maybe? <laughs> but it's just a wonderful, a wonderful quote and begins to push us uh, or point towards consolation as well. Oh, awesome. We'll look, we'll look forward to hearing that and we'll see you back for part two shortly. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Cheers. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo. The ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing. The shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something. Even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going. Because they were holding on to something. What are we holding on to, Sam? But there's some good in this world, Mr. Ford. And it's worth fighting.